Back to Philippians. Begin turning there. We're back in chapter 2. We're looking at verse 14 this morning. Page 982 in the Pew Bible. Man, the sovereignty of God. We just sang about it. We're going to talk a lot about it today. But in God's meticulous, detailed sovereignty, as I looked over the passage I would be preaching this morning, as I prepared for vacation a couple weeks ago, I got... Don't complain ever about anything. Do all things without complaining. Seriously? As I'm trying to pack, as I'm trying to get the six of us out the door in a timely manner, as I'm trying to beat New York traffic, as I'm facing an 11-hour drive with four little kids and with traffic and with the lack of sleep that goes with vacationing with little kids, the constant family interaction, the bad weather, I could go on and on and on. No complaining. Let me tell you, it's been a challenging two weeks with that command sort of sitting on my shoulder, kind of like an annoying little Jiminy Cricket. Uh, bad traffic. No complaining. No sleep. No complaining. Difficult family. No complaining. Really? Before vacation, I intended to do all of 14 to 18 in one sermon. But after two weeks meditating on verse 14 and the constant complaint that characterizes our culture, I had to give this verse its own sermon because I am a complainer. I guess I don't know all of you very well, but I know some of you very well. And it's probably pretty safe to say that you are a complainer. And so one of the main things I want to accomplish this morning is to convince you of that. I have been astounded these last couple of weeks, just by how much of our conversation consists of complaint. I want you to see it. I want this in your brain, so for the next week, um, before your sinful hardness can kind of put this out of your mind, I want this to be on your mind as you pay attention to your own words and the words around you. I want you to be shocked and disturbed as I have been these last couple of days by the continuous complaint. Our own and others. And complaining is like the air we breathe. We're so surrounded by it, that we don't even notice it anymore. It's so common that we just assume that it can't really be that bad. We are constant complainers in a culture of complaining, which makes us often clueless of our complaint. So I want you to see it. But I don't want you to just see it. We have a command before us today. Do everything without complaining. Stop complaining. How? Well, we'll see. We're talking about complaining this morning because that's what Paul is talking about in the text before us. Well, why is that what Paul is talking about now? Well, because these sins, uh, this is a sin that particularly breeds disunity and a sin that particularly clouds the gospel. Remember what Paul is after, a manner of life worthy of the gospel. And it's not just our individual lives of holiness. Those are very important. But his concern is corporate. He wants us together living a life worthy of the gospel. He wants us, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in a full accord and after one mind. Paul is after the unity of the church. And complaining and arguing destroys unity. Paul's after the advance of God, the gospel, 112, complaining and arguing, as we'll see next week, impede the advance of the gospel. We talked last time, a couple weeks ago, about the work 
that you are called to do. Verse 12, work out your own salvation. Not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation. Live it out. Strive after holiness. Your sanctification involves your work. In light of 5 through 11, in light of Christ's work on our behalf, his death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins, in light of God making us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved through faith. In light of all of that, now live this way. Live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. Be who you are in Christ. Work out that which God has worked in. That's the general application of the gospel. The gospel is not what we do. The gospel is what Christ has done. We don't live the gospel. Christ has done that. But we do live in light of the gospel. We do live in response to the gospel. There is a manner of life that is consistent with the gospel of Christ. So the general application was live it out. Well, okay, great. But how? More specifically, what will that look like? Well, in part, it will look like verse 14. This is one of the main ways how to work out or live out your own salvation. It is to do all that that entails, all the sanctification, all the obedience without grumbling or disputing. A manner of life worthy of the gospel will be a manner of life without complaint. And yet, man, how many of our lives are so characterized by complaint? We need this word this morning. I need this word this morning. So our goal simply is to contemplate complaint. I really had a hard time uh, with the outline this week. I, I looked at it and I looked at it and had all these things and got rid of things. Uh, one verse passages are more difficult than longer passages. I read one guy this week whose outline was, this is great, grumbling leads to stumbling, grumbling leads to crumbling, grumbling leads to mumbling, grumbling leads to bumbling, grumbling leads to humbling. I was really tempted to, to steal that one for myself. Um, now, I know that I am awfully affectionate of alliteration, but if it ever gets that bad, help me. <laughs> Say something to me, please. So we're going to keep it nice and simple this week. Three points. You could call these the what, the why, and the how. What? No complaint. Why? The sovereignty of God. How? The work of Christ. Let's, let's read the text. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and read all of 14 through 18 to give us a little more context. We'll come back to the rest of it next week. But we're going to focus only on verse 14 in the sermon. Philippians 2 verses 14 through 18. This, in God's sovereignty, is what he wants to say to you today. Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If you would, bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I am so thankful for your church. I am so thankful for brothers and sisters in Christ. Thankful for Woodside. Father, it is good to be together. 
thank you for the privilege and the gift of corporate worship. Father, this is corporate worship. Now, we now worship through the preaching of the word. Help us, Lord. Focus our minds and our hearts on your word. Father, focus our minds and our hearts on Christ. We come to this text about complaint as the chief of sinners. We come to this text as complainers. Father, forgive us. Have mercy on us. Help us. Father, do what I am incapable of doing. Father, we ask that you would work. We ask that you would speak. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Work on our behalf and work for your glory. In this time, we beg, and we beg this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, verse 14. It looks simple. It's short. It's only seven words. It's only six words in the Greek. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to understand it. Don't complain. That's it. We're done. All right, let's, let's pray. Simple to understand. Difficult to do. Impossible to do with man. But not with God, because with God, all things are possible. So I want to be clear that this is possible. It's short. It may seem like there's no way we could spend almost an hour on these few short words. But I hope to convince you that we actually need a lifetime on these few short words. I always preach better than I practice. That's not hypocrisy. That's being a human. That's being fallen. That's especially the case this morning. Again, I stand before you as a fellow complainer, desperate for God to open all of our eyes to the seriousness of this sin, desperate for God to move and motivate us to hate and kill this sin. So first, we've got to figure out what it is. What is complaining? Well, look at the verse. Notice that the ESV doesn't even use the word complaining. It uses the word grumbling. There's a few other translations which use the word complaining. If you're looking at the King James, you'll see the word murmuring. And for our sake, this morning, we might come back to this next week. To simplify, we're going to take grumbling and disputing together under the head of complaining. The second word is a more difficult word. It can be translated arguing or disputing as it is. It can also mean doubting or, or questioning. So it's possibly best to take the first word as maybe the internal complaining of the heart, a vertically oriented complaining that then overflows into the external complaining horizontally that then leads to the arguments and disputes and disunity in the church. Both together are complaining. And the first word that you have there, grumbling, is pretty cool sounding in the Greek. It's gangusmas. And some scholars argue that the Greek word is onomatopoeic. That's right, it's the adjective form of onomatopoeia. I just wanted to be able to say onomatopoeic in a sermon, but you know what that is, right? It's a word that imitates the sound that it describes. Slap, resembles the sound that it makes. That's onomatopoeia. That's why the King James translation of this word is so good. Murmuring is a sort of onomatopoeia. It sounds like what the word describes. It's kind of under the breath. It's kind of repetitive. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Murmuring. What exactly is it? Well, definitions are very important. Let's look at scripture to help us define it. Let's start briefly in Acts chapter 6. You can turn there if you want. This is where you were two weeks ago with Vijay's sermon. So there's an interesting connection between that text and this one. We often have a somewhat utopian view 
of the early church. We could just get back uh, to the early church. Well, in actuality, the early church was plagued with problems just like the current church. We're only six chapters in in the book of Acts, and what happens? A complaint arose. It's the exact same Greek word we have translated grumbling in our passage. Remember the widows of the Hellenists are being neglected in the daily distribution, so they complain. Hold that thought. I want to talk about the possibility of holy complaint. I might save that for next time due to time, but there's a complaint there, and it doesn't seem like it's that bad. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. We're not going to really get to it today, but we're going to get to it. So hold that thought. Definition. There's something wrong, they complain. There's something wrong, they express dissatisfaction or discontentment with their current situation. And that's what complaining is. Complaining is simply an expression of dissatisfaction. It is an expression of dissatisfaction. Or even more simply, it is the complaint, the claim that something is wrong. A complaint. Now let's consider 1 Corinthians 10, 10. Just go to your right a couple of pages. 9.57, a page, it could be pages. Page 957, 1 Corinthians 10, 10. Again, this is the only other time now that Paul uses this word. So this will help us uh, go a long way toward help to understanding what it is that he means. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is using the example of Israel as a warning to the church in Corinth. He's simply saying, don't be like them. Don't do what they did. Verse 7, he says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. What else did they do? Verse 10, look at verse 10. Don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul actually uses the word grumble twice there. In the Greek, you'll see it in the King James. Don't grumble as some of them grumbled or don't grumble as some of them did as the ESV puts it. So Paul there is clearly referring back to the experience of Israel in the wilderness. And I think he's also referring back to the experience of Israel in the wilderness in Philippians 2 as well. So let's turn there as we seek to understand the nature of complaining. Let's start in Exodus 15. Jump around for a little while. Page 57. The bottom of page 57. Exodus 15. Uh, this book, aptly named is about the Exodus, God's deliverance of his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. As we saw this morning in Sunday school, God raises up Moses as their savior, as their deliverer. He has supernaturally demonstrated his great power and his superiority over the Egyptian gods through the ten plagues. Pharaoh has finally let God's people go, only quickly to change his mind. So now he is pursuing Israel, and Israel is trapped. You have the unpassable Red Sea on one side. You have the unbeatable army of Pharaoh on the other. And the word grumble is not used in this text. But Exodus 14, 11, if you look there real quick, the people are afraid and they cry out. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Well, it sounds like complaint. 
to me, even though the word's not used. But you know the story. God miraculously delivers them. The uncrossable Red Sea is crossed. The undefeatable army is defeated. God has revealed himself to them in remarkable, miraculous, supernatural ways. Surely there is no reason to doubt this God now. Surely such a display of both power and grace would be enough to convince the people of his care and control. Chapter 15. Notice verse 22 of chapter 15. They're only three days into the wilderness. They are only days away from God's miraculous deliverance. But water is short. And so what do the people do? Verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Same word that we're looking at in Philippians 2. They grumbled. Look at the very next chapter. Exodus 16. Look at verse 2. God again miraculously provides deliverance and water, but what about food? Verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Same word. It happens again in Numbers uh, 14, if you want to look there. I forgot to write the page number down. Numbers 14. Their journey is finally at an end. They are ready to enter into the good land, leaving wilderness Going into this wonderful promised land. So they send in 12 spies ahead of the people to, to scout out that land. And they come back and 10 of them come with a bad report. The people are too great. The cities are too strong. We cannot go up against them. We cannot take the land. Then in 14.1, the people respond to the report. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept at night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, What that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? That's grumbling. Same word. Israel is dissatisfied with their circumstances, and then they express that dissatisfaction. They complain. But our command is no complaining. That's interesting. Jesus says in his great commission in Matthew 28, remember he says make disciples. That's what we're to be about here at the church. We don't get to decide what our mission is. We make disciples. That's why we preach Christ crucified because the gospel is the means by which disciples are made. We don't care about professions of faith. We're looking for the obedience of faith, as we talked about again in Sunday school. That's what we saw a few weeks ago. Your salvation includes your sanctification. Those whom God justifies, he also always sanctifies. And then we also saw that your sanctification includes your work and that your work is obedience. That's our right response to the grace of God. And so Jesus tells us how disciples are made. Baptizing them and teaching them. Teaching them what? To observe or obey all that I have commanded you. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is one who follows Jesus, and they follow Jesus by obeying Jesus. By doing what he says. By doing all that he says. And here again is why maybe those red letter Bibles aren't particularly helpful. As if the words of Jesus were more important than the other words of the Bible. No. Every word in this 
book is inspired by God. Every word in this book is the word of Jesus. If you want a red letter Bible, then make all of the words red. Right? It's his word. And so when he says disciples observe and obey all that he has commanded, that isn't limited to just the words in the Gospels that physically were spoken by the mouth of Jesus during the course of his three year ministry. No, it's all the commandments. It's Paul's commandments. It's this commandment as well. When Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, do all things without grumbling or complaining, it's as if Jesus himself said, do all things without grumbling and complaining, because it's his word. Which means that Christian, this command, Philippians 2.14, is for you from Christ. It's a command. Don't complain. This is not one that we get to choose to ignore. It's right there with no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no complaining. Jesus says, obey all his commandments. And this one is included in all things. And Paul says, don't complain in all things. Do all things without complaint. And that means that there is nothing. I want to be clear. It means there is nothing in your life to which Philippians 2.14 does not apply. All things really means all things. At home, uh, at school, at work, relationships, play, on the road, behind the wheel of your car, no complaint. Are you uncomfortable yet? You should be. If you're not, you're not listening. I'm uncomfortable. This seems insane. It seems impossible. This is one of the most, I think this is one of the most difficult things commanded in Scripture. So we need to keep going. We, we've seen the what. We've defined complaining as an expression of dissatisfaction or discontentment or disappointment. Come on. What's the big deal? Right? It's everywhere. We all do it. Everybody's doing it. It can't be that bad. So why no complaining? Point number two. Because of the sovereignty of God. By the way, we're just getting started here. And I'm loving this because now that we've seen the nature of complaining and the command is not to do whatever, I can preach for as long as I want. Right? Surely you wouldn't dare to complain about the sermon on complaining. I specifically didn't wear a tie this week because you can't complain about it. Right? I can get away with it. Right? So it's good. We got, lots of, we got lots to do. So get comfortable. Sovereignty. We've seen what complaining is. Now we've got to sort out why it's so bad. How in the world could something as innocent and common as complaining about traffic on the LIE or packed and late seven trains, how could these things be sin? Back to Numbers 14, page 122. I wrote it down that time for some reason. Page 122, Numbers 14. Again, remember, Israel's response to the bad report from the spies concerning the promised land. We read verse 2, I'll read it again. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So they complained. And we're specifically told who is the focus of that complaint. It's Moses and Aaron. The complaint is specifically directed at them. Moses and Aaron attempt to intervene. They attempt to speak some sins to the people. They attempt to talk them down in verses 5 through 10. But look at verse 11. 
And the Lord and Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? That's important. Don't miss this. This is the why. We are specifically told that the people are complaining against Moses, yet God himself says it is he who is offended. And this is made even more explicit for us back in Exodus 16. Jump back there, and we'll slow down on the page turning. 58, page 58. And this is the third complaint. We've had Pharaoh's army. Uh, God provides. We've had no water. God provides. Now we're again at the food. Page 58, 16. Look at verse 2. Again, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly. That's some pretty good complaining. You're trying to kill us. And I don't know exactly what a meat pot is, but it sounds pretty good. Right? If I had to leave that behind, I'd probably complain too. Uh, but the point, again, is that we're specifically told the focus of their complaint. Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The complaint is directed at them. In verses 4 and 5, God tells Moses that he's going to miraculously rain bread from heaven. He's going to feed his grumbling, ungrateful people. Moses reports this good news uh, back to the people. And look at verse 7. This is Moses talking. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8, And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. That's why complaining is so bad. The people specifically complain about Moses, but Moses tells us that in reality, they are specifically complaining about God. And you, every time you complain, let me repeat that. Every time you complain, you are ultimately complaining about God. Why? How is that possible? Sovereignty. Sovereignty is why. What is that? What is sovereignty? What's this thing that we talk about? so much. Well, a king is also sometimes called a sovereign. Sovereignty is simply then the, the rule and the reign of God. It is his absolute authority, his absolute power, his absolute ability to do as he pleases. He is the king. He rules and he reigns. He is in absolute control. We just finished, uh, before I left for vacation, we finished our study of the whole Second London Baptist Confession of faith, the, the 1689 for short. Now we're working in through the Sermon on the Mount. You should join us at 10 for Sunday school before the service. You're still going to be hearing a lot, though, about the 1689. It's a wonderful summary of Reformed Baptist theology, which is my theology. And in chapter 3, paragraph 1, the 1689 says this, From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs. 
Without reference to anything outside himself, he did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own, of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Main point, God decrees everything that occurs. Everything that happens, happens because God decrees, ordains, or determines it, whatever you want to call it. When I'm saying everything, a lot of people use sovereignty with qualifications. I'm using no qualifications. I literally mean everything. No exceptions. Then there's chapter 5 of the 1689, which is about the providence of God. What is providence? It comes from Latin. Pro means before. Videre is the Latin word for to see. So literally, providence means to see beforehand, or it means foresight. But providence is not just for seeing. It is for doing, or for executing, or for ordaining. God carries out his decrees. He executes his decrees. He makes his plans. Then through creation, he creates everything, obviously. And then in providence, he sustains and he directs and he orchestrates everything. The Shorter Catechism says, providence is God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures. Chapter 5 of the 1681 says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, by his perfectly wise and holy providence. All things come to pass unchangeably and certainly in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, who is the first cause. Thus, nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. Right, so, God's providence is his upholding and sustaining of all things. And it is his directing and governing of all things. Right, so according to the 1689, before time began, God decrees all that is going to come to pass. And then God actively sustains and directs all of those things to those good ends. That's his sovereignty working itself out in his providence. Don't care what the 1689 says, though? Scripture. Here are a few Scriptures. Let's start with Daniel 4, 742, if you want to look there. Uh, Daniel 4, verses 34 through 35. Before I can convince you how bad complaining is, I have to convince you uh, how absolute sovereignty is. 742. Nebuchadnezzar is the king, so he is the sovereign. Right? He is the most powerful person in the world, recently humbled by the most powerful person in the universe. And after God restores Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar praises and blesses the Most High God. And here's what he says in Daniel 4, 34. His, God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's absolute sovereignty. He has an everlasting dominion. He's the king. He does according to his will, not your will. He's not concerned with your will. He's concerned with his will because he is sovereign. And it says that no one can even question him. Now, that's largely the point of the end of the book of Job. Job wants answers to great, unimaginable suffering. God doesn't give Job answers. God doesn't owe Job answers. Job cannot even begin 
to comprehend the wisdom and the greatness of God. He is only to trust him. Or how about now Isaiah 46, page 607. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Read Isaiah. It's so good. Don't be intimidated by Isaiah. Tackle it. God speaking. He says, I am God, and there is no other. Skipping. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. That's sovereignty. Before there was a beginning, God declared the end and the beginning. He ordains, and then he does. Psalm 135, 6. You don't need to turn there. I'll be quick. It's simple. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Whatever he pleases, he does. God does what he wants. That's sovereignty. We don't have time uh, to get into these in detail. We don't have time to answer all your questions that are raised by the sovereignty uh, of God. Uh, we'll, we'll tackle them at some point. Go look through these passages uh, yourself and, and work uh, through them. Let me stop this part of the Sermon of Ephesians 1.11. Last one. In him we have an attained an inheritance. Oh, inheritance. Life. Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. How do we get this inheritance? Well, having been predestined according to your purpose, your will, no. According to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. We're really, really concerned with our will as Americans these days. Scripture is really, really concerned with God's will. Everything that happens, happens according to God's will. That's what we mean. That's what the 1689 means. And more importantly, that's what the Bible means when it says that God is sovereign. Now, what in the world does any of that have to do with complaining? Why are we talking about sovereignty right now? Well, it's simple. I think you're with me. It's because if God is sovereign, and Scripture is clear that he is, then whatever it is that you are complaining about, as Moses told the Israelites, you are ultimately complaining about him. Because he specifically ordained that thing. Any complaint about anything is ultimately complaint against the God who decrees all things. Ultimately then, as one author puts it, complaining is no less than the claim, God got it wrong. That's what you're saying every time you complain. God, you're wrong. God, you must have made a mistake which implicitly includes the claim that you are right and that you've got it right, that you know better than God. And for the sinful, finite creature to accuse the holy, infinite creator that he is wrong, well, that is the height of arrogance and pride and rebellion and sin. As if we think that complaining is nothing. We're so used to it. We cannot even begin to imagine what it would look like not to complain. Listen, I guarantee this. Take it to the bank. I'll wager any amount of money because this will never happen, so I don't have to be worried. If complaining somehow ceased, Facebook and Twitter would have to shut down. They would not be able to be sustained without the existence of complaint. We'd probably even struggle a bit to know how to talk to one another. Complaint is such a part of the warp and woof of our daily conversation. You probably already complained about the heat today. 
Hey, how you doing? Oh, it's hot. Oh yeah, no man. Can't wait till fall. Oh, can you believe it's so cold? Can't wait till spring. We complain so regularly that we would probably struggle to communicate without it. And because it's so common, we assume it must not be that big of a deal. Everybody's doing it. And that means nothing because everybody is a sinner. James 3.8. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And one of those deadly poisons is complaint. Because complaint as an expression of dissatisfaction in a world where God is perfectly sovereign, perfectly planning and ordaining all that comes to pass, that complaint, no matter what its immediate focus, is ultimately a complaint against God. God, you, you got it wrong. That's what you're saying every time. And yet we complain all the time about all things. Your complaint, you complain about your relationship status, right? Some of you complain that you're single. Uh, some of you complain that you're married. You're complaining and declaring that God is wrong in where he has you right now. He meticulously and purposefully has you where you are right now. Your complaint about your boss, uh, your job, your salary, your co-workers, you are declaring that God is wrong where he has you right now. Your complaint about your church. I like this one. Your complaint about me is ultimately a complaint about God, right? So, so be careful. That's what Moses said. But my complaint about you is likewise ultimately a complaint about God. Some of you go, oh, we've never complained. Yes, we do. Because we're sinners. Complain about the music and the programs, who you're stuck being members in this church with. All of it is sinful complaint against the God who decrees and directs everything. Think about it for a second. What is it that you are regularly complaining about? What is that thing for you? I can, I can answer for you because you are regularly complaining about God. It is the person of God and his absolute sovereignty that makes complaining so bad. It is an assault on his power. And it is an assault on his goodness. Satan loves to try and to get us to doubt God's goodness. Whatever your circumstances, no matter how hard, no matter how horrible, don't forget Job. We just started studying him last Wednesday. We didn't get very far. You haven't missed much. Come and join us uh, this Wednesday as we're looking at Job. The truth is, no matter how difficult your circumstances Job, what did he lose? Everything. Ten children, his wealth, and his health. No matter how difficult your circumstances, the truth that you must learn and remember and remind and recite is that, according to Job, each and every one of those circumstances, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how good, no matter how bad, has been ordained by God as part of his purpose and plan for your life. He is sovereign over everything. There, there is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as randomness in God's world. Everything that happens, happens according to the sovereign will of God. He is that big. He is that in control. And he is that good. 
as I, I really, I want you to hear this. Some of you are going through hard things, and I, I know that. I'm not trying to discount any of that. Brothers and sisters, God is always good to his people. Always. Even when sad things happen to us, he is good to us. Even when things that seem bad happen to us, he is still good to us. We open the service with a wonderful psalm, 118, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever. Again, how can we say that when such bad things keep happening? How can we say that in the midst of evil and suffering? Again, sovereignty. You should just spend the whole next week just reading Romans 8 over and over and over again. We know Romans 8, 28. We just, we just tend to misunderstand it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But here's the problem. You attempt to define that good for yourself. You think you know what your ultimate good is, and it's generally selfish. It's about your own comfort, or your pleasure, or your ease, or your success. It's about whatever you have defined for yourself as the good life. You have something in your brain that defines the good life for you, that you are living for, and your judgment about God and how good he is, is dependent about on how well he is doing to bring about your definition of that good life. Your good is to be able to do basically whatever you want, uh, whenever you want. Comfort and ease and, and jobs and like, those things aren't bad. Uh, but none of these things are your ultimate good. And here's the key. The steadfast love of the Lord does not just endure to the end of this life, but it endures forever. See, you need to see the bigger picture. You need to see the better picture. What is your ultimate good? What does it mean that God is working all things together for it? Well, Paul tells us, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what God is doing in all things. That's what God is doing in everything. That's what you need to repent of, not believing, and ask God to help you believe as your ultimate good. He's fixing us. He's making us what we were supposed to be from the beginning. He's making us holy and righteous and good like Jesus. He's killing sin and selfishness and pride and anger and lust and hatred. He's making us more like the most perfect and good person who has ever lived. And guys, I, again, I don't know about you, but the older I get by the grace of God, the more desperately I want that and realize how much I need that. Increasingly, finally, by the grace of God, uh, uh, I'm tired. I'm tired of my sin. I'm tired of how strong it sometimes feels. I'm tired of being so angry and impatient. I'm tired of complaining when things don't go my way. I'm tired of the struggle to follow Christ and my proneness to follow self. Instead, I want to be much less like Matthew and much more like Jesus. I want him and I need him to work all things together for that good. And you know what that takes sometimes? Pain, difficulty, suffering. God is sanding away 
the rough edges. God is showing me the sin that remains. He is knocking out the sometimes very dear and central idols in my heart. He's cutting away all that hardness that remains. And that's why no matter how bad or how sad, whatever it is that God brings into my life, I can know, again, I can know objectively, it's harder subjectively sometimes, but I can know according to scripture in Romans 8, 28, that he is ultimately still being good to me. Whatever he's doing, whatever it is, he's ultimately still being good to me because he is sovereignly good and he is working for my good, which is making me like Jesus. He's working towards eternity. We tend to work towards retirement or the weekend or vacation. He's got the bigger picture in mind. He's making us like Christ so that we could be with him in pure joy and bliss for all of eternity. And that requires the doing away of everything that doesn't make me like Jesus. Guys, there's a lot of things that remain that don't make me like Jesus. And so there's a lot still that must be done. And so when I complain, I am complaining about him. And I'm complaining about his plan. I am doubting his ultimate goodness towards me. I am accusing him of badness. My complaint is sin. It is evil. It is rebellion. It is doubt. It is unbelief. Father, help my unbelief. You say that you believe that God is sovereign. And you deny it every time that you complain. Psalm 139, 16, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. That really bad day, it's not just the good days. That really bad day where that really bad thing happened, written in the book uh, before you were even uh, formed. When as yet there were none of those days. Every day in detail was written by God. Do you believe that? Then stop complaining. You say that you believe that God is good, but you deny it every time you complain. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Every day and detail is God's ultimate goodness toward you. Do you believe that? Don't stop complaining. John Newton, he's better with words than I am. You know John Newton's my favorite This quote's a little bit long, but it's so good. Uh, So stick with me. This is the best letter writer in church history after Paul. This is one of the best pastors who has ever lived in the history of the church. Listen to what Amazing Grace, author of Amazing Grace, listen to what Newton writes in this letter. So good. One of the marks of Christian maturity, which we should all seek, is an ascent to the Lord's will, founded in a persuasion of his wisdom, holiness, sovereignty, and goodness. So Christian maturity starts with ascending, assenting to God's will, that he is sovereign and good. So far as we attain this, we are secure from disappointment. So if you believe that he's sovereign and good, you can't be disappointed. He keeps going. Our own limited views and short-sighted purposes and desires may be and will be often overruled. But then our main and leading desire, that God's will may be done, must be accomplished. What's our problem? Our problem is we're prone to fix our attention upon immediate circumstances, forgetting that whatever befalls us, everything is according to his purpose and therefore must ultimately be right and good in itself and shall be productive of our good. From hence, 
Arise in patience, resentment, and complaining, which are not only sinful, but tormenting. Whereas if all things are in his hands, if the very hairs of our head are numbered, if every event, great and small, is under the direction of his providence and purpose, and if he has a wise and holy and gracious plan in view, then we have nothing to do but with patience and humility to follow as he leads and to cheerfully expect a happy end. Oh, how happy are they who can resign all things to him, who can see his hand in everything, and who can believe that he chooses better for them than they possibly could for themselves. I love that end. He chooses better for you than you could possibly choose for yourself. And every time you're complaining, you are claiming, God, I could have done this better. I, I would have chosen this thing. But again, if he's sovereign and if he's good, then in every situation, he chooses better than you do. That hard thing, he's choosing better because he's doing something bigger with that hard thing. That thing that you hate right now, God is sovereign over that. And you can choose him. You can trust him uh, because he is choosing better than you and for you. He's sovereign. And he only does good to his people. God only does ultimate good to his people. Can you believe that? This is one of the most important rules, truths of the Christian life that we've got to get right. But we so struggle to do is that we can trust God, even when we have no idea what he's doing and why. We shift from the why to the who. Trust you. It's easy in theory, I know. It's a lifelong struggle in practice. Don't complain about God. Trust God. How? That's the last point. You know the drill. Nothing changed over vacation. There's no time. Our shortest point, though, is our most important point. How can we do this thing that feels so impossible? It is only Christ. You have to make sure you keep verse 14 closely connected to verses 5 through 11, which is Christ and the gospel. We have established as a fact that I am a complainer. And I hope that you're honest enough with yourself to admit that you are too. We have established as a fact that complaining is sin. And Romans 6.23 establishes as a fact that the wages of sin is death. In one of the Old Testament complaining episodes, it concludes with God killing some of the people for complaining. Seems extreme to us. Uh, well, not as much once we understand what complaint really is. It's Sin, and like all sin, it is a rejection of, and it's a rebellion against God, and it is an assault on his good character. You are a complainer. Complaining is a sin. Sin deserves death. You deserve to die for your complaining. But God. But, verses 5 through 11. But Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You sinned, you deserve death. Christ died. And that's, that's the gospel. It's the good news of what God has done to save us from our sin. He sent Christ to become a man, to take our place, to take our sin, and to die in that place for that sin, to pay the penalty, the death that we all owe. 
for our sin. God graciously provides for his people a savior to come and die for us and to come and live for us. The law had to be fulfilled. The law which requires perfect obedience. One sin breaks the law. One sin disqualifies us from our perfect God, which is why he sent his perfect son to also live in our place, to keep the law that we all broke. And that means that Jesus, who was without sin ever, was without complaint ever. I can't even begin to imagine it. We can't do good things without complaining. We can't go an hour without complaining. He lived 33 years of a pretty difficult and painful life without ever once sinfully complaining. Even on the cross, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24, here's the gospel again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He never complained, yet he died for our complaining so that we might die to complaint and live to never complain. The verse, before all that says that Jesus suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. So stop complaining. But, but do that by first realizing that he never started complaining. And then he continued his whole life with ever, without ever complaining for you. He was perfect for you. He has done and accomplished everything necessary for you. If you are not a Christian this morning, the only thing that you need to do is see your sin and turn to him. It's, it's to repent and believe you are a complainer among countless other sins. You deserve death and you will die unless you believe in Christ. Confess your sin and turn to him. And if you are a Christian this morning, you need to see your sin and turn to him. Right? Repentance and faith are not one-time actions by which we're simply converted. No, they are life-going, lifelong, ongoing actions. You cannot go a day without complaining. Christ went his entire life without ever once uttering a complaint, and he did it as you, for you, in your place. So how do you stop complaining? It's by looking to him. It's not a cop-out. That's the answer. It's by seeing what you deserved compared to what you have been given in Christ. It's by seeing what you have been saved from and what you have been saved to, and then by giving thanks for the difference. We combat grumbling by replacing it with gratitude. It's, it's that simple. Everything that you have is grace. Every good thing comes from above. Anything better than hell is grace. The undeserved, unmerited gift of God. Remember the Greek word for grace. It's charis. Charis. The book of Philippians is about gospel-generated joy. Remember the Greek word for joy. It's kara. It's the same root. 
which is contentment, joy. It's, it's the deep down settled conviction that all is well because of Christ, which then leads to gladness. And notice again how similar the word is, kera to charis. So joy then is simply an awareness of God's grace. That's what makes us glad. That's where joy comes from. And right now we're talking about the solution to grumbling being gratitude, thankfulness as the solution to complaining. What's the word for thankfulness? Eucharisto. Literally means good grace. It's the recognition that God's grace works well. And therefore we are glad and thankful. It's all the same word. Charis leads to Eucharisto, leads to kera, grace, to thankfulness, to joy. That's how you combat complaining. In a sense, complaining is simply, it's forgetfulness. You've forgotten the amazing grace of God. Solution, remember, remember. Three steps, root in the gospel of Christ. I'll make them really short and we're done to help you combat your constant complaining. Remember, rehearse, request. Remember, rehearse, request. Remember what you deserved. Remember what you've been given instead. So remember the grace of God. Then rehearse and remind yourself of those things daily. In other words, meditate on the gospel. Meditate on Christ. Fill your mind with the things of God and constantly dwell on them. Some of you are wondering why things are so hard or why you're stagnant or why you're not growing. And then frequently as a pastor or a counselor, you ask, oh, and how's your time in the Word? Ah, you know, I don't really ever read it. Well, okay. What do you expect? Because this is the means through which God works through His Word. Rehearse the grace of God to yourself through the Word. And then, man, request. Pray. I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, I'm a complainer. I don't want to be a complainer. Forgive me. Help me. Remember. Rehearse. Request. All of that rooted in what Christ has already done for you, which is finished. You deserved eternal death in Christ. You have been given eternal life. All by grace. What in the world then do we have to complain about? Ultimately, Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is sufficient for the task of which I am so insufficient for. Well, I want to talk, I want to talk for two more hours. Uh, Lord, help us to trust your word uh, to do its work. Forgive us, Father, for the sin of grumbling and complaining. Father, we are all of us in this room guilty of this sin. Father, show us, convince us, remind us of our sin. Give us a great hatred for it. Grow in us a great desire to grow in godliness and holiness. Father, more importantly, remind us that Jesus Christ has already died and paid for those sins. He has already died and paid for the sins of complaint that we are going to stumble into this week. Father, we're so thankful for that. Use that, Father, to motivate us to, to love and to gratitude and to obedience for the full, finished, and perfect work of Christ in our place. Father, make us more like him. We are often so unlike him. I want to complain 
less, Lord. Father, I want us to be individuals and a church that uses their words well, that encourage with our words, that glorify you, with Father, that express thanks and gratitude instead of discontent and grumbling. Father, forgive us. Father, we need your help. Do in us now what we cannot do in ourselves. Do it for your glory and do it for our good. And we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.